Today on Government Matters, a new order from President Trump on what to look for when the federal government hires. The acting leader of the Office of Personnel Management, Michael Regas, tells you what that order means. More money for the nation's nuclear jewels. The Senate says yes, the House says maybe. A top leader from the National Nuclear Security Administration details what he needs. And a modernization effort in the legislative branch takes cues from the executive branch. The leaders of the House Select Committee on Modernization explain what their committee's doing. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A new executive order from President Trump encourages agencies to base hiring decisions more on a candidate's skills and less on her educational credentials. The Office of Personnel Management will work with agencies over the next four months to reassess the qualification standards. Michael Regas is acting director of the Office of Personnel Management and acting deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. Mike, welcome back. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What do agencies have to do now and what will they have to do in the future that they didn't do before the executive order, Mike? Well, thanks, Francis. Uh, good morning, and thank you for having me with you today. It's good to be with you again today. Uh, what the executive order is uh, that President Trump signed, it requires agencies to develop and offer skills and competency-based assessments as distinct from self-assessments uh, for every job that they advertise in the competitive service. Uh, so what that means is uh, that candidates, uh, we're, we're moving away from candidates basically being able to you know, rate themselves as the most highest uh, qualified in the number of uh, skills and attributes required for success in a position and have a more objective-based assessment of a candidate's skills uh, before they are deemed qualified for a position. Do we have a sense yet of what that will look like? OPM made a big deal in previous administrations about trying to transition from uh, knowledge, skills, and, and assessments to a more resume-based uh, format of hiring. And there are some fears that I've heard this week that this is a maybe a transition back toward the agencies administering some kind of assessment that they develop on their own. Is that what we're looking at here, or are you thinking this is going to go in a different direction, Mike? Well, there are a number of ways that agencies can achieve this result. Uh, two of sort of the, the ones that have been used very successfully um, in the past and even currently are uh, these online assessments that uh, OPM actually offers to agencies through USA Hire. Agencies are also able to uh, procure these kinds of assessments on their own, but OPM does a great job with our industrial psychologists, um, and there's a lot of work that goes into creating these assessments to ensure that they uh, rate a candidate's uh, skills and abilities to be able to do the job. The other, one of the other uh, methods that are used are using subject matter experts to conduct quality assessments on candidates when they apply for positions. This is a pilot program that has 
uh, been incredibly successful, that the U.S. Digital Service has worked with like the Department of Interior and other agencies to qualify candidates who are applying for technical positions and technology positions within agencies. Subject matter experts will look at their uh, resumes, will do a review, will conduct preliminary interviews, and then they will be able to assess a candidate's uh, qualifications for a job before they get put on a cert uh, for the hiring manager to review. And that results in a much higher number of uh, qualified candidates on the uh, certification that are available for hire to agencies than the current system. It also strikes me that that gives you an opportunity for this to be vertical as well as horizontal, not just an agency by agency mm -hmm. review of what these positions should look like and, and how they should be skilled, but you'll be able to put these into skill set buckets where it's possible that a worker at one department will need pretty much the same skills as the worker in the same type of category in another department, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel over and over again. Am I reading that right, Mike? That's exactly right, and that's actually, it's exactly what has happened in these pilots that we've done with the subject matter expert qualifications. Uh, once a pool of candidates have been determined to be uh, qualified for the position, they've been able to be available to multiple agencies for hiring and those agencies have been able to hire within days um, candidates uh, reducing the hiring process from you know 80 days to seven to ten days on on some of these positions and it's an incredibly powerful tool for not only reducing the amount of time it takes to hire candidates but also increasing the quality of applicants uh, candidates that are on the uh, certificates that candidate break, that candidate visibility, Mike, from agency to agency is a breakthrough that people have been talking about for years. Are there other aspects of some of these long-term hiring reforms that people have been talking about that you think maybe this executive order could potentially lead to? Yeah, so just by doing some uh, some technical fixes, you know, I'm looking right now, OPM sort of owns and runs USA Jobs, the website that uh, uh, in interested applicants looking for federal jobs apply to. And right now it is not a, a easy uh, technically or otherwise to be able to allow candidates to uh, share their resume with other agency with other jobs at other agencies should the particular position that they are applying for a particular agency not come through for them so for instance if i'm at opm and i want to hire a technology expert um, for a particular position but i only have one opening and the department of commerce has four openings for that exact position uh, if we interview a number of candidates and we determine we have five high, highly qualified candidates uh, but we're only able to hire one under the current system, those four candidates who are qualified but we just didn't have a position for them at our agency would, would now basically be discarded and they'd have to go apply on their own at another agency uh, for that same position. What we're looking to do is basically take those four candidates and say, hey, these are highly qualified, they've been certified as qualified candidates for this position, and Department of Commerce or any other agency that is looking to hire would be able to snap them up within days. So we really eliminate a lot of sort of waste in time and resources um, in the hiring process, and so that results in, you know, not only just better candidates for, uh, for hiring at agencies, but also it results in better mission outcomes at agencies, a stronger workforce, and better outcomes for the federal government. Mike, HR experts have been looking for that in government for many years. If you can crack that nut, good luck to you. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Francis. Great to be with you.
Up next, going after more money for nuclear weapons programs. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the National Defense Authorization Act and the future of nuclear weapons. You're watching ABC7. The Senate's draft of the National Defense Authorization Act authorizes a 20% increase in the budget for the National Nuclear Security Administration. The agency could get $19.8 billion for nuclear weapons programs. Frank Lowry is Associate Administrator for Management and Budget at the NNSA. Frank, uh, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the difference between what you originally asked for, what the Energy Department originally asked for, and what your boss, Lisa Gordon Haggerty, asked for in an increase back in January? And where did that, where did that, uh, that uh, difference come from? Thanks, Francis, for having me. So the request from the president for the presidential budget request for the NNSA National Nuclear Security Administration for fiscal year 21 is a request for $19.771 billion. And that request will support the three mission uh, pillars for NNSA. The number one on the list is the strategic nuclear deterrent, our nuclear stockpile. Uh, also, the Defense Nuclear Nonproliferation Mission that keeps the entire world safer for all of us, our kids and our grandkids, and the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Mission that provides the nuclear reactors that propel our nuclear submarines and our aircraft carriers on defense missions that keep the peace around the world. And so that budget request, the $19.771 billion request for fiscal year 21, supports all three of those missions and uh, it was the right request. The secretary uh, and the, the president uh, approved that request, and now it's up on the Hill for deliberations. One of the reasons that I'm happy to talk to you, Frank, is because every year people talk about the money that's going in, uh, whether it's authorized in NDAA or appropriated um, in the appropriations bills, talk about the money that goes for defense, and it goes to the Defense Department and then some other agencies, and they, they talk about the work that you and your organizations do separately almost, and yet you're integrated very tightly into the programs that you just talked about with the DOD programs, right? Yes, sir, uh, Francis, that's a great way to put it. In fact, we have uh, continuous deliberations with the Department of Defense uh, to make sure we remain aligned with what the Department of Defense needs for our strategic nuclear triad for the deterrent mission and so we do that through the nuclear weapons council plus we are integrated with the department of defense through the department of the navy and the naval reactors organization which is uh, admiral frank caldwell and he is the uh, military officer that's in charge of the mission for all of our nuclear powered carriers and nuclear powered submarine so that integration the nnsa being fully integrated in the department of defense budget build and budget request, it's essential. We have to be lockstep with DOD to make sure that we deliver the products they need on the schedule they ask for. And that's why it's very important for us to stay so tightly aligned. In your debrief a moment ago, Frank, you talked about the refurbishment and the infrastructure uh, projects that are necessary. Give me more detail on that, where that money will go and, and what kind of updates are necessary, how that contributes to the executing the national defense strategy and so on, Frank? Francis, great question. So when you look at the National Nuclear Security Administration, our DNA runs back to the Manhattan Project in, in World War II 
And in fact, some of our facilities are still those same buildings that were built to support the Manhattan Project you know, back in the 40s. 40% uh, of our infrastructure is more than 40 years old. And so renewing the infrastructure, replacing buildings that are really past their uh, normal lifetime is an important element in the refurbishment of the infrastructure for the National Nuclear Security Administration. We're a little bit different than other Department um, of Defense uh, agency requirements because if I think of the submarine infrastructure and who's gonna build the next nuclear powered submarine, there's a giant industry out there that does nuclear submarine construction for us and they are in charge of refurbishing their own infrastructure as a, as a, as a company. And NSA is not like that. We are a federal agency and the infrastructure that we have to rely upon to deliver for the Department of Defense is maintained by the National Nuclear Security Administration. It's not owned by a, a giant industry. It's, it's government owned and contractor operated. So for that infrastructure refurb, given, uh, let's assume that you get the money that you get, you go through the typical uh, buildings process that a, a civilian agency would go through working through the General Services Administration, PBS. What does that look like, Frank? So, uh, Francis, it's a little more complex than a normal uh, GSA construction project might be. If we were going to build an office building, um, I, I would say, yes, we follow uh, GSA requirements. But we are talking about infrastructure buildings that have to support uh, nuclear operations. So there are a whole different set of safety standards that are required and that our, uh, our uh, project management and project acquisition folks have to comply with. Uh, it's not as simple as building uh, an office building and then uh, uh, you know, occupying it with folks that are gonna do uh, payroll and HR. We're talking about building and uh, constructing buildings that are gonna be used to assemble, disassemble, and perform surveillance on uh, nuclear weapons. And so the, the safety standards are uh, quite a bit more uh, stringent than you would expect for a normal GSA uh, office building, if that, if that answers your question. It does, and well, that's exactly what I wanted to get at, is that the that infrastructure in an agency like NNSA is not simple, that it's a, a complex operation that you're about to undertake. 30 seconds left, Frank. What's next on your agenda besides just getting the uh, understanding what your budget and authorizations will be for fiscal 2021? Hey, Francis, thank you. Uh, we're focused on the recruitment uh, across our enterprise. So it's a 50,000 person strong enterprise, and we are recruiting even in the midst of a pandemic. We have not stopped, and we're interested. If folks are uh, looking for a mission that they can uh, enjoy and find passion for for a lifetime, we're looking for those folks. Frank Lowry, great to have you here. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, sir. Up next, technical glitches, spotty Wi-Fi, and hearings on the Hill starting and stopping. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what members of Congress can learn about modernization from the executive branch. You're watching ABC7. Hearings in the House of Representatives have had a virtual look during the coronavirus pandemic, but those hearings are not immune to technical glitches. A recent Foreign Affairs Oversight Investigation Subcommittee hearing had to take recess twice because of bandwidth issues. Representative Derek Kilmer is chairman of the House Select Committee on Modernization of Congress. 
Representative Tom Graves is vice chair. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining me. Mr. Chairman, I'll start with you. Your committee has been at work since long before the coronavirus pandemic started. What have you learned about how uh, remote work and so on affects the mission of the House as a result of coronavirus? Well, you're right. This is a committee that was set up uh, at the beginning of last year with a simple mission, and that is to make Congress work better on behalf of the American people. And in the midst of this virus, part of the challenge is just making Congress work, period. You know, we've, I think, learned a few things. One, it's really important that every committee, that every office has a continuity of operations plan. Um, more often than not, most members didn't have policies related to telecommuting. And, and, and frankly, the technology uh, solutions weren't there. And the reason that's a problem is because now more than ever, our constituents are leaning on us for information and to solve problems on their behalf. And so part of what our committee has been looking at is how do we ensure that there are uh, systems in place to ensure the continuity of operations so Congress keeps working? Some of that is big things, right? Like the broadly uh, having a, a plan in place, a continuity of operations plan in place. Some of it's small things, right? So for example, the executive branch um, has figured out that digital signatures might be required when people are working remotely. Congress doesn't really have uh, provisions to allow that right now. Um, the ability to communicate with our constituents. I'm sure Tom, like me, does a lot of, of town halls. Uh, there's not any means through which Congress bulk purchases telephone town halls when the main uh, way in which we can communicate with our constituents is no longer in person because we actively don't want hundreds and hundreds of people getting into a large room with each other right now. Mr. Vice Chair, Congressman Graves, what have you learned through all of this and what are you seeing? Where are you taking information, guidance, experience, knowledge from as you go about the work of trying to modernize the House of Representatives and the way it does business? Well, this has been a great journey. Uh, we could have never foreseen what we would be dealing with today, and the chairman has done a wonderful job of leading us through this process of exploring how we can better um, uh, serve our constituency through the adaptation of new technologies and, uh, and connecting with our constituents. So we've had many hearings uh, related to technology advancements, and some, a lot of things have been highlighted that we have recommended, like uh, you know, how can we bring on new technology faster and quicker? Uh, oftentimes in government, uh, by the time you adapt new technology, it's out of date and there's new technology in its place that uh, now you're behind. Uh, and, and then, as he mentioned, the continuity plans. Uh, but as well, we you know, made a recommendation we require all members uh, to go through cybersecurity training, that they have an understanding of the threats that exist. But that, that's, those are some of the positives that we could foresee. What we've noticed since, though, are some of the, challenge, the challenges that I think everyone's dealing with across the country, and that is we, we are a very much a disrupted workforce like so many others. And uh, so having uh, access to reliable, secure broadband or Internet or Wi-Fi is uh, something that we have challenges with as, uh, as members of Congress, just as our, our, um, our staff does. And, uh, and then we have additional cybersecurity threats that I think uh, we as a committee and others are, are looking to how, to how to address those as well when we have been moved into uh, unsecure networks. Mr. Chairman, your most recent hearing, a virtual hearing, of course, and you looked at how to boost internal expertise uh, in Congress. Where, where are you looking for that information? What kind of expertise either have you determined or do you think that you need to build 
inside the House to be able to meet the challenges we're talking about here? You know, part of the problem that we've defined is that there's just massive turnover in the legislative branch. The, um, the tenure of uh, staff members is very short. And in fact, one of the things that our committee was directed to look at was recruitment, retention, and diversity of staff so that we have a staff that looks more like America looks. And um, we've had hearings, to your point, looking at, uh, uh, at um, sort of best practices in the uh, human resources arena. Uh, some of that is looking at providing uh, adequate compensation. Unfortunately, we're lagging. Uh, the legislative branch is lagging in relation to the executive branch and most assuredly to private industry. Some of it's looking at things like professional development opportunities. People will stick around if they feel like they're making a difference and they're growing professionally. And so we've we've looked at some of those best practices and seeing how the, how they could be applied uh, to this workplace. Congressman Graves, we have about a minute left. What have you seen, if anything, in the executive branch that you think will be useful as they've undertaken a pretty heavy-duty IT modernization effort over the last several years? What have you seen there that you think might apply in the legislative branch? I think what, we, what we've seen is some of the challenges they deal with. They operate in a lot of silos, and so there's a lot of technology um, uh, differences amongst all the agencies within the executive branch. And I think what we've highlighted is the importance of bringing a lot of that together in the House to have some uh, some common practices, bulk purchasing, uh, specialists or IT specialists assigned to members' offices. Uh, so using not necessarily what we're learning from the executive branch in a positive way, but some of the challenges they have and how can we uh, learn from that so that we avoid some of the, the challenges that they have in some of their updates and modernization as well. Congressman Graves, Congressman Kilmer, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. You bet. Thanks. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC 7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.